Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, this is J.R. Lowry, and welcome to Career Sessions. Today, my guest is Andrew Hecker, who I met when we were seated next to each other in our first year of business school. Andrew is the CEO of Concept Machine Tool, which he's led for the past 18 months. Andrew started his career in a rotational program at Arvin Industries, a manufacturer of automotive parts in Columbus, Indiana. Following business school, he spent several years in the newspaper business working for Knight Ritter in Southern California. He then returned to Arvin with assignments in Paris, Manchester, England, and Knoxville, Tennessee. He went on to Valspar, where he worked in a variety of roles in Pittsburgh, Zurich, and Minneapolis. Prior to taking his current role, Andrew led commercial and corporate development for Lord Corporation in the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina, where he engineered Lord's ultimate sale in 2019. Andrew is a member of the Board of Trustees at Dunwoody College of Technology, and he's also a board member for a startup called ABV and a volunteer in the Boy Scouts. He earned his bachelor's degree in economics and philosophy from Wabash College and his MBA from Harvard Business School. He and his wife, Carrie, live in the Minneapolis area and are the parents of three boys. Andrew, welcome. Great to have you as a guest on the show. Thanks, JR. Looking forward to the conversation. Let's start with uh, one of my favorite Andrew Hecker stories. So tell the audience about the time that you were held hostage by your employees. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to be here, JR. Thanks for inviting me. So that was a story I had gone overseas working in France. My job was a plant manager first and as a director of operations, we were going through the 35-hour work week negotiation. So there were some uh, discussions with the unions uh, that were happening and uh, we had had a, uh, this was a blow up over nothing, right? But ended up with a hostage story. So had a uh, negotiation scheduled for 2 p.m. on a Friday. Earlier the day, the the head of the union said, we're going to cancel that uh, discussion. And then, you know, came back at 4 p.m. and said, we need to meet today. And I said, well, you canceled the meeting at two. So, you know, we'll, we'll meet on Monday. And he says, well, you're not leaving until we meet. So it then became sort of a, a standoff. And I said, well, okay. And I was in the HR manager, HR director's uh, office at the time. And we ended up staying in there till about uh, 11 o'clock at night, called the French consulate, uh, for, uh, the French consul right, that uh, for the prefecture, the prefet, who does all of the work to handle situations like this. And eventually uh, cooler heads prevailed. And I went home uh, very late to a dinner party. So we were having friends over and and uh, that's uh, they still remember that time that I showed up close to midnight late for the party. I'm sure they do. And probably half of them even believe the story is true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's go back to the beginning. So you were in, you started your career in a rotational program at Arvin as an economics philosophy major coming out of school. How did you end up choosing a job in the automotive industry? I I always knew I wanted to have a career in business. So I looked at opportunities and there were two opportunities in particular that were attracted to me. One was a consulting uh, business that uh, would have 
had me going into many different uh, companies, kind of like you you ended up uh, doing after business school. The other one was this uh, manufacturing business, Arvin Industries, that was looking to train general managers. And so they had a rotational program and they sponsored, they would sponsor you for business school. So they had, you know, I was probably the 10th, 12th, 15th person that was in that program. And many of the people had gone to top flight business schools and had been uh, through a rotational program. And then the idea was you go through rotation, you go through business school, and then you get placed as a general manager. So that sounded very attractive to me. And the company was based in Indiana, which is where I grew up. So it made a lot of sense. And, and I chose that one coming out of undergrad. What do you think you got out of that rotational program? I mean, you had the rotational program plus the sponsorship for business school. So there was even more to it than what some rotational programs offer. But relative to like going into a job where you just went into one job, you held it until you found the next job you wanted. What do you think the rotational program gave you in terms of a head start on your career? Some people know what they want to do. They know they want to be a CPA or they know they want to do marketing or they know they want to be in creative or some other function. I didn't. And I had gone to a undergraduate program, where, which was a liberal arts program. If I had gone to do anything else, I would have gone to be an engineer and got into several engineering programs, but ended up going to a liberal arts college You know, that was training me for a lot of different potential careers. And so economics was the closest thing to, you know, to business probably that I, I could have chosen in an undergraduate liberal arts program. I did philosophy because it was very interesting to me and I think exercised different parts of my brain. And when I went into this program at Arvin, it, it offered me an opportunity to go into different functions and try them out. So I went into engineering, I went into customer service, I had a rotation in the manufacturing plant implementing sort of a Toyota production system mm. uh, type program that, uh, that Arvin was big in implementing at that time. I worked in the corporate development team, uh, which was a foreshadowing to some of my later uh, involvement in my career and did financial analysis on competition and on people that we might acquire. So it was a great opportunity to try out a lot of different functions and to get a flavor for them. It was by far more of an investment in me as an individual than company got back in return. But I was able to do in each one of those assignments, I was able to do something meaningful that was providing real value to the company. So those programs aren't as common as they once were. But I think for companies that you know are looking at maybe a demographic issue that with the aging workforce or something like that, and they're saying, hey, we really need people in XYZ function. It could even be done within a certain function in a company to populate young people, give them an opportunity to experience different parts of that function or different parts of the company, and then have them choose which one is the best fit. And it, it's a way of jumpstarting a little bit of the talent pool. Yeah. And having people get experience, uh, once you have experience in different areas of the company, you kind of understand how the other function works and it makes you more effective in whatever function you're in at the time. Yeah. I mean, I've seen those programs work really well. I've also seen them where the people who are in them bail out on them partway through, which is never good. And where the company, when you get to the end of the rotation program, doesn't necessarily have a role for you, which is also not good. You had sort of a defined time and then the expectation was that you would go off to business school. Not not yep. too different from going to work for a consulting firm where the expectation is that you go off to business school after a few years. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that provided certainly an ending on it. And it was always a bit organic, takes more resources at the company to design these types of programs and to manage them and run them. You do have to have somebody who's passionate for early career development. And it wasn't always somebody in HR. And in one case, uh, we started one of these programs at 
at a later portion of my career at, at uh, Valspar, mm. we started uh, for sales and marketing associates. And we had uh, somebody who was an engineer who was really working with those folks to try to get them experience across the different uh, sides of, of that business. Yeah. Finishing school, you had standing offer to go back. You decided to go a little bit different direction when you took the job out at Knight Ritter, what prompted the change in direction? Yeah. So, you know, there were so many changes in my life at the end of uh, business school. My wife and I got engaged at that time. I decided to make a career change. A lot of the things where the automotive industry was, you know, was located. My wife had us a background in fashion and merchandising. And so you think uh, automotive uh, parts manufacturing locations and fashion merchandising uh, locations, they don't always happen to be in the same spot. So I wanted to try something other than automotive. I, I took a role with Knight Ritter, a publishing organization, and internet was coming. The company was trying to turn around its business, uh, diversify its revenue streams. So we moved to California. My wife was working in Orange County. I was working in Long Beach. You know, paid back my business school debt to my first employer and, and ended up uh, in this role for publishing and working to change the way that the business worked. We all know how the movie ends uh, with the newspaper business. After a couple of years, for me in particular, I knew that you know in the news organization, it had a pretty intensely local focus for a particular newspaper. And, and I missed the international exposure. I had worked overseas in between years of business school. I had done a junior year abroad in my undergraduate uh, time. So I kind of missed that uh, that broader exposure and international exposure. And then the second thing was was really a big one. I looked at the potential of turning around the revenue model for the business. It was going to be very difficult. Most of the newspaper, well, a good portion of their the revenues were based on classified advertising. That was what was impacted most by internet-based competition. So we've seen various successes at it in, in terms of you know paid subscriptions increasing, New York Times, Wall Street Journal being you know particular success stories in that. And then various local papers have, have really struggled there. Obviously a tough time for the newspaper industry, and it's been a pretty tough ride for that industry ever since then. So then you went back to Arvin and you went over to Paris, first of three expat assignments that you had. I think when you did the first one, you were no kids. When you did the last one, you had three kids. I know you lived in three pretty different places, Paris, Manchester, England, Zurich. How would you describe your time living abroad? And what would you say to somebody who's considering an expat assignment? Yeah. So I would uh, say it was a very rich and rewarding experience for us. Um, for and and I say us for the kids for my wife Carrie and and me we had a good experience uh, overall with uh, our expat assignments and for many people that I've talked to in my career they they say well how do you get that assignment how do I get an international assignment for me it, I I kind of fell into it I had started networking I knew that the publishing thing wasn't something that I was going to stick with long term and I I networked back with my former bosses at Arvin and you know I was looking for a reference and they said hey we got a job. So they pursued me to come back. And that was really gratifying. I, I had declared that I was interested in a international assignment and they, they looked for something. They had just taken something, a joint venture whole. And so there was an opportunity for me to, to me to move over into the management team for that business. So that was sort of the catalyst that got me into, into the international scene. For people who are you know in different situations that I met expats along the way. Some of them were with large companies and, and this was very common. Some of them were with consultancies or within banking. And it was fairly common for folks to move internationally in those instances. It really comes down to saying, if that's what you want to do, 
how do you set yourself up into that situation where you can be of value to a company and and the company gets something out of you know moving you overseas? It's a very expensive proposition for a company to do if you're going to be on an expat you know package. Right. So there's schooling. Uh, you know, in our case, we went over with no kids, as you said. There, so there was no schooling. But schooling gets to be expensive. Housing gets to be expensive. Taxes and tax situation gets to be expensive. So I would say that for us, it became very much a good cultural experience. Stretched us, stretched me out professionally in new situations, new jobs, new functions, new cultures, new languages. And uh, I'm certainly glad that I raised my hand and, and asked for that. It's been a big part of my career. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as an expat myself, although we did it after our kids were grown, certainly you get a lot of experience and opportunity to meet people that you never otherwise would have met and, you know, enjoy just ability to travel, particularly when you're on an assignment in Europe where everything is so close. So, but it's a trade-off, you know, you're far away from your family and, you know, there's sort of a limited amount of time typically, and, you know, a little bit similar to those rotational programs, not all companies are great at getting their expats back you know, into a role that's really the right next role for them. So you, you have to go in a little bit with your eyes open on, you know, some of the potential trade-offs you make. For us, it's been a really phenomenal experience. Yeah, I would tell you that when you're international assignment, no matter how big the company is, uh, even to a certain extent where wherever the headquarters are, I, I knew folks in France that were working for a French company that were in the headquarters location. And then then the question is, how do you get back to the US mm-hmm. and you're going to a satellite? In my case, I was going to a satellite away from the headquarters. And I spent in my first assignment, we went for three years to France, which extended to five years because I took different roles. Then we reorganized the business along country management lines. We had been organized on functional lines and the business was reorganized on, under uh, country management. So I, I moved to the UK as essentially the country manager. So that extended our role, had our second child in, in the UK, and we ended up being overseas for eight years in a row uh, before mm. moving back to the US, had our third child in the US. And that move back to the US was a little bit of a, effectively the company, my company Arvin Industries had merged with Meritor, an old Rockwell automotive company and really put light vehicle and heavy vehicle businesses together. I was working in an aftermarket parts business that was selling through distribution. The aftermarket parts business was about a billion in revenue out of a seven and a half billion total for the company. And the billion in revenue got put up for sale. So I moved back to the US effectively with my company or my division, which was part of a sale process. And so I ran a a business uh, that was undergoing a sale And that's what I came back into from an overseas assignment. So it got me home, quote unquote, to the US. It then ended up with having a sale process that uh, I was managing along with the the team that I inherited. Yeah. So you came back basically to sell off that division. And at the end of it, you were out of a job, which is always a unique situation in its own way. I've had several other friends who've, who've gone through that process. And a lot of them, you know, despite the fact that they ended up without a job at the end of it, I still feel like it was a good experience because they learned a lot about M&A from the perspective of the company that's being sold. And so, and they've kind of used that later on in their career. Would, is your experience the same? I mean, was it something that that you felt like was a good experience despite you know the outcome? Yeah, I would say that it's not something that you would say, yeah, let me go do that just so I can bolster my experience. But having done it, 
there were so many learnings from it, right? So I was managing a team that was going through a great period of uncertainty. And I came in knowing the business was for sale. The team I was working with and managing, this was happening to them. They didn't have choices in it. They had families and schools and careers going on. And and we were going through a, a sale process. The process actually ended up lasting for a little while. And so there was some stress of managing that. There was this manage the the customers and the team through all of that and then position the business for sale in the best way possible. So I did learn quite a bit. Actually, we were going through that sale process, let's see, in 2006, 2007, and Lehman Brothers was our bank. So this was pre-2008, obviously. So it was a interesting process to go through that. We sold to a independent owner operator who didn't have need for me. It wasn't sure who you know, whether there'd be a need for me in this business going forward until we got down to, you know, knowing who we're going to sell to. And I I realized that there was probably not going to be something for me, which was fine. And then for my team, it was a question of how many of those folks would be needed. And I think fewer of them were needed than I had hoped, or that then certainly some of them had hoped. It turned out to be a pretty good learning process for me. Yeah. You, You had a pretty thorough job search. I remember after that, before you ended up at Valspar, How did you think about the decision options and the decision ultimately to go there? Yeah, I looked at manufacturing and I had been in manufacturing, had done quite a lot of lean manufacturing and different roles. I had, I'd been a plant manager, a director of operations, and then I got into general management and more on the commercial side as a general manager. And I was looking at what type of uh, situation would be great? The automotive uh, business had gone through, especially in some of that time frame. it was really all about cost down. And there was a lot of uh, pressure on you know, being the low cost producer and not a whole lot of innovation going on, frankly. I liked the idea of uh, different industries and was looking at uh, taking the general management part of my background and, and applying it in different areas. Valspar came along as a company that was about a $3 billion company when I joined them similar in size to to the Arvin uh, that I had joined, global business. They had a global business unit that they needed. So it was uh, automotive refinish paint. So they were making automotive paint, selling through distribution, slightly different channel, very different technologies, but uh, similar dynamics going on. And they needed somebody to manage that global business. So it was a good fit. It, they also wanted bench strength for future general management roles. So I uh, I joined Valspar and immediately into a into a global role, and that led me you know, after really eighteen just eighteen months in that role to different businesses, packaging coatings, industrial coatings, and other areas within uh, Valspar. So it was a good move. I know you did time in Pittsburgh and Zurich, and then you ended up at the headquarters in Minneapolis. You've worked for a few companies that are very far flung. You know, how do you sort of think about the trade offs between being at the headquarters and being, you know, out in a you know, a location where you're kind of the boss. Yeah. So you mentioned Zurich. I was I was leading the Europe, Middle East, Africa, India business. And I was definitely in the region, but I had six or seven bosses. I had the leader of the industrial business, the leader of the decorative or architectural coatings business, uh, leader of the packaging business. So all of these different global business leaders, um, you know, I had a portion of that PL when I was running the European business. So I was on my own. I was running a, a business that had uh, seven plants, I think, uh, across Europe. But everything, none of the none of the businesses were majority based in Europe. So they were all uh, minority 
for some US-based business. So then coming back into the headquarters, it was very much, okay, this is where some of the decisions get made. This is where some of the technology development happens. We did have technology uh, development in uh, Europe, but it uh, it wasn't in certain businesses, wasn't as, uh, you know, well-resourced as it was for the headquarters. I think getting in, into the headquarters, you do have an idea, a better idea of, okay, here's how the decisions get made. Here's This is where most of the senior leadership is based. Not all senior leadership, uh, but most of the division leaders were based in Minneapolis, uh, which was where Valspar was headquartered. So no big takeaways from being in the, in the region. I guess in the region, you're a little bit more independent, but you have to work harder at staying in touch with what's going on in headquarters. You have to have, you know, keep tabs on what's happening there because you don't see people in the hallway. You're not hearing, oh, by the way, so-and-so left or by the way, so-and-so joined and by the way, so-and-so got more responsibility or this organization change happened. So you had to do a little bit harder. You had to work a little bit harder in a regional role to stay in touch with some of those uh, changes that were happening at the headquarters. But uh, I enjoyed both areas greatly. And the headquarters roles, it, it's more about, hey, figuring out how do I make the, how do I make the most impact? And I guess there's maybe a little bit more opportunity to figure out what your next role might look like. You know, when I was over here in London the first time, I was over here for like two and a half years. I think I went back to Boston at least 20 times, maybe 25 in that two and a half year period. So pretty regularly. And even with that level of regularity, being back at our headquarters location, I still felt disconnected from a lot of what was going on there. And to your point, it's harder to stay connected and plugged in when you're out off in some place. You trade that off against the day-to-day autonomy that you have. And it is a trade-off. Right. You did a lot of M&A work in your later role at Valspar. M&A is one of these areas that people are dying to get experience in. You know, what advice would you have for somebody who wants to get that M&A experience? For me, it became something that I was in a role that I was responsible for strategy and for the markets that uh, we were in, in an industrial sense. I had been in Europe as the general manager. So I'd come back and you said, when you're coming back from an expat assignment, you Sometimes, you know, you're looking at what role do you get into? And so I came back into a functional role and it included strategy. But I had been in Europe looking at what potential M&A targets would we have. And so that was a part of my job. And it was really all about identifying a pipeline, having a process and working that process. So for people that are considering, how do I start with that? I mean, I would first understand what does the M&A process look like for your company and how do you get involved with it? Because there's, there's generally speaking, some opportunities that even at a uh, individual contributor role, you could pick up hey, here are a couple of good ideas for editors that are out there or other players that have capabilities that we don't have that we might acquire. So, you know, just being aware of what might make a good acquisition or what might make a good partnership. And then for me, it was coming back and looking at how do we grow our business? We were pretty large in the US in an industrial business. We were fairly small in, in Europe. And so discovered an opportunity that for an industrial acquisition, there was a business in Italy that effectively I was aware of because I had been in Europe that uh, was coming to market and I was leading strategy. So this became a something that we were going to go after. We ended up uh, winning that and becoming the acquirer for that business. And so going through that process of leading it from a a division standpoint, and then also my boss at the time had had quite a lot of uh, M&A experience and was able to to be very instructive on that. Our uh, legal team at uh, Valspar had quite a few 
experiences with acquisitions. And so, you know, it wasn't me by any stretch of the imagination. It was, I was learning from a lot of people, but we put together a program for that, not just the acquisition, but integration plan. And then uh, after acquiring the business, we worked on the integration, you know, for a good year, year and a half, which was mm. a pretty complicated integration uh, into the business. So that was my first start. And that led to me taking over M&A for the company, for Valspar as a whole. And we did a couple more acquisitions, did a, did a divestiture of another business um, as part of that. So all in all, I think 10 or 11 transactions as a part of that. Not nearly as many as you would get in investment banking, but very meaningful to the overall company in a private company or a public company in this case. You know, there's not, not as many transactions as you would see in an investment banking setting. Yeah, but it's different too. You know, you're on the inside. Right. And it's a very different experience. It's a bit like consulting, right? It's very different to be a consultant than it is to work for the company. It's different to be an investment bank advising a company on a sale relative to the companies that are involved in the process, you know, of the acquisition. So not everybody's going to get to work for an investment bank, but if you are looking for MA experience, as you said, you know, figure out how your company does MA, and that's a good place to start, right? right. If they do MA, even right. some don't. Yeah, some of them don't. And uh, some of them, they say, hey, that's not your job. So don't worry about it. But my experience is if you hold your hand up and, you know, ask for those opportunities or show interest or go above and beyond your current role, you know, nobody's going to say, hey, you're a financial analyst, ignore your financial analyst responsibilities and, and spend all your time on M&A. That's not going to work. But if you are performing well in your analyst capabilities and you can offer some extra help to the M&A team, I think that is something that would be appreciated and, and would be enriching for the individual. Yeah, absolutely. So you then went to Lord down in North Carolina. Yeah. Your family stayed in Minneapolis. How was that process? You were going back and forth pretty much every week, as I remember. Yeah. I think living in a extended stay hotel kind of thing, right? Uh, for a while. And yeah, so this, the story with, uh, with Val's ended up with Valspar selling itself to Sherwin-Williams. So I left uh, during that process and the process of looking for what was next became one for me of finding the right fit, finding the right size company. And, you know, this was the period where I had had maybe two weeks in between my time at uh, Arvin Meritor and Valspar. And I had, you know, probably about eight or nine months in between my time at uh, Valspar and, and Lord. Yeah. So this was an opportunity to join a company that was a privately held company that had been a family business for about 60 years and then run under a trust for 30 years. I joined in a in a CEO succession role. Of course, nothing's guaranteed, right? But I joined in a commercial development role and I joined at a really interesting time for the company. It was a business that uh, was super well-developed from a technology standpoint. Great technical minds, a lot of patents, a lot of technology development, a lot of innovation. And they didn't have as well of a developed sales process and commercial success process. So I joined in, in that role, running the uh, the commercial side of things, commercial development, working on digital marketing and helping the business with a transformation effort. So the company was going through a transformation effort, which we we branded Lord Summits, you know, climbing new summits. And we were targeting a billion in revenue. When I joined, it was about 850 million in revenue. And uh, we started the whole company on this transformation effort. Around the same time, the company decided after 
sort of almost 30 years under a trustee arrangement to seek strategic alternatives. And so that led to us, you know, going down the path of selling ourselves. And uh, it was a very interesting process. I was fortunate to be, you know, leading that deal team. Our CEO knew my background in, in M&A and uh, we formed a great partnership in helping to work with our board and market the company. So we eventually sold to Parker Hannafin. I think it's been a good outcome for both the folks at Lord and, and the folks at Parker. It was a good uh, match between the companies. But as you say, JR, that, you know, my intention probably when I joined was maybe to relocate the family after my oldest uh, exited high school. Mm. But it ended up when we, we set ourselves on a path to be sold that I did not end up relocating. I thought there might be a potential for me leaving the company at the end of the process. So I ended up uh, commuting and it was a different uh, type of experience. I thought I might commute for nine months or a year, ended up commuting for three years and Mm. a very different situation. You as a family, I'm sure had to figure out how to make that work. Yeah, I give full credit to my spouse. Carrie really had to take on a lot during that time. I was uh, back and forth. Company was very supportive at, at that time and I was able to make it work. But certainly being away from the family four days a week, you know, not unlike uh, consulting or some cases banking, but uh, it's not unlike some of those roles, but it was certainly a different role than we had had in my career. And so I was spending significant amount of time away from home, working like crazy when I was in uh, North Carolina. Love that area of the country. It's a great place, but it was a new experience for us. Yeah. And hard. I mean, I think people, I've had to counsel people, you know, who are contemplating it. I've had people who've asked whether they can commute in. I'm always very quick to say to them, like, make sure you really know what you're getting yourself into. It's it's like getting on a plane every Sunday or early on a Monday, you can get old. And, you know, you have to really have an extra level of passion for what you're doing, you know, to not get worn down by that. Yeah. If you're doing it without an ending in sight, I think it's an extra level of uh, challenge. Uh, yeah. If you're doing it with some sort of an end in sight, then it becomes something that most people can manage. I certainly had, you know, when I was doing my job search, I had other job opportunities that came up before the Lord opportunity. And I knew that I wanted to get my eldest who had moved 11 times. And I think he had moved seven times as, mm. as a kid. And I wanted to get him through high school. We've since been in one place, you know, now for a decade, but I wanted to get my eldest through high school without having another move. And some of the companies were accepting of, of commute for a period of time to get him out and others were not. Yeah. And I had one of the recruiters, you know, say to me, Hey, most people can do nine months. Some people can do 12 months. The number of people that can do more than 12 months of commuting is very few. And mm-hmm. so, you know, as a recruiter, they advise their clients against having people do a commute for more than 12 months because stuff happens. Uh, you know, a spouse gets sick of the sick of the travel. The worker who's traveling gets sick of the travel. They, there's issues with medical. There's issues with, you know, job performance, what have you. So right. what I learned about that for myself was it developed a, a lot of m- muscles that I was able to exercise, you know, working independently, working hard when I was in North Carolina, making sure I connected as much as I could uh, with folks that were there. And then I did a little bit more deep work on typically a Friday when I would be not having in-person meetings. And this was before Zoom and Teams and other technologies became more commonplace. But I would do more of my deep work on those days when I was not traveling. So it worked for me. I found out I could do it. I think I could do it again. It does have a high cost. 
It's not yeah. that I would never do it again, but it, it's just, uh, I know that I did it and I can do it, but it, you're right. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Talk about what you're doing now. I want to make sure we get to that before we run out of time. You're in a much smaller situation. You sort of purposely shifted into something where you had the opportunity to really help a company grow from a relatively small base, right? Yeah. So I've switched and had always wanted to do private equity-based businesses, looking at smaller uh, businesses that are owned by private equity fund, you know, leading the business as a CEO. So I had looked at uh, opportunities when I was joining Ward. Nothing was evident at that time. And uh, an opportunity came up this time to lead a business. So I'm leading a distribution business based in Minneapolis. So not as much travel. We're in uh, about nine states in the upper Midwest and we distribute machine tools, metrology, additive manufacturing equipment, and then we have services that support all of those. So it was an opportunity for me to get uh, back into a general management role, work in a business where I could really pull all of the levers that uh, needed to be pulled. As you say, um, focuses on growth. So we're looking at uh, organic growth, but also growth through mergers and acquisitions. And that's an area where I feel like I can help the business out as well. So it was a good fit for me. And I'm having a ball built out a team uh, here. Uh, we're performing well. And you know what's next is uh, we'll see. I've got uh, several acquisitions in the works, nothing that's public or to announce here, but watch this space. And then, you know, as most private equity opportunities present themselves, then there'll be a sale and I'll look to carry on with a, probably a new owner and keep rolling on forward and see what the next challenge is uh, down the road after that. Awesome. So looking back over the whole of this time that you spent in Arvin and Knight Ritter and back to Arvin and Valspar and Lord and where you are at Concept, what overall takeaways would you offer to people who are listening just in terms of how to think about their career opportunities and some of the things you've learned along the way that really stick the most with you? Yeah, I think you've asked some of this, uh, you know, was it intentional? Was it opportunistic? And, and I would say it was a little bit of both. For me, it's kind of like uh, if you're searching for a house as, a, as an expat coming back to the US, I've bought, I think, uh, two or three houses where you have to look at what houses are on the market during the week that you happen to be house hunting. And right. uh, you right. don't have months and months to do it. You have to come back to the US, you have a week, you pick a house and you move, right? So finding a job, you know, you could have the perfect job come up and you're not ready for it. Or the time that you're looking for a role, you've just gone through a sale process, you're out, you know, you've taken a, a severance package and you're, you're now looking for your next challenge. That perfect role doesn't present itself right then, right? It might be four months down the line, it might be uh, next week. So there's certainly some intentionality about how do you create those paths, uh, which paths would be most useful to you and I went through some guidance with a firm here in the Minneapolis looking at how do you create several different paths that you would be happy with, right? And, and that would be fulfilling for you. And then uh, working a networking job search to find the potential jobs that would be out there. But it's a matter of some folks along the way had their door knocked on. I think it's always good to listen to those, those types of opportunities and see what's out there. Sometimes you may intentionally go out and, and search, seek something out, but it, it's just finding... What do you think is right for you at the next point in your career? What works for you and your family? Is your spouse working? Are you wanting to move? Are you wanting to change industries? Are you wanting to change functions? All of that stuff is easier 
the earlier you are in your career, you know, the more you get developed in your career, the more those decisions become harder because of either family or because, uh, you know, you're looking to make a big change and somebody's not necessarily willing to make a big bet on you at that point in your career. So it's been something reflection I've reflected a lot on each time I've gone through a transition. And I found, I think, was uh, looking back, it's been a very rich, international, rewarding experience in this latest uh, role a ton of fun working in a very different environment, gone from public to public companies to a large private company to a smaller private equity owned business. So that worked for me because I seek out variety. It might not work for everybody else, but everybody's got to find their own path. Yeah, absolutely. Any final thoughts to share? No, appreciate the opportunity. I, I guess like some of your other guests, maybe just advice for for people, you know, hold your hand up, seek out and volunteer for different things. Those are the paths can lead you in different directions, get out of your comfort zone. There's a lot of cliches here, but keep looking for advancement. Keep listening to stories like this and like others that you've had on the show and then network, right? Before you need it, uh, make sure you're asking folks that might be more advanced in their careers. You admire, what can you do to advance your own career? How could you change yourself, change the way that you work, change the way that you're perceived so that you can advance or you can achieve your own professional goals that they might not be advancement, but uh, you could achieve your goals. Yeah, all good advice. And you know, while some of those things may be cliches, there's also a lot of validity in them, so. Exactly, exactly. Awesome. Well, I will let you go. Thanks again, Andrew, for making time. I appreciate you being a guest on the show and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, JR. You too. Cheers. All right. Take care. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.